Jen, and you're listening to A Thinker's Guide to the Beginning. In this mini preseason, you and I are focusing on who we are, why we're here, and what the hell we want to do about all of that. Together, I hope that we're going to savor the beauty and complexity of what it really means to be alive while we ponder the mysteries of your heart. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Today's podcast is sponsored by me and my voracious reading habit. Now until July 13th, you can enter for a chance to win my seven favorite books for the existentially curious. You can check out all the details in today's show notes. And I want to remind you that if you enjoy this podcast, to please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of all that business. Let's dive in. Today in our third episode, The Dream, we're going to consider what it means to drink in the mysteries of our heart, particularly when they appear to us through seemingly nonsensical messages from the unconscious. universally acknowledged that most people don't really want to hear your dreams, metaphoric or literal. In fact, there's this great song that I love that I'm resisting the urge of just reading to you line by line what goes on in the song. It's by Karen Kilgareth and uh, Drennan Davis. And they just talk about how nobody really wants to hear your dreams. Even as you start to tell them, people people are tuning you out. I, But I'm going to tell you my dream anyways. Because, well, because I can. And of course, you can choose to disregard it by simply turning off this podcast. It's very easy. And we all have choices after all. The dream, the dream is hard to grasp. I can feel it spilling out of my mind like an overturned mug of tea. And the details all feel like birds eating roadkill when you drive too close They all fly away, each in opposite directions, scattering with their portion. It feels unclear about which to follow. And as I wake from the dream, I move cautiously, even in that half-sleep. And I'm really trying to be quiet. I don't want to jostle the bed too much. I don't want to wake my partner, who's a light sleeper, as I aim to record this thing that, at least in the dead of night, feels profound. But maybe that's just because I'm not awake enough to know any better. I type it out, misspelling every other word, which in retrospect, I did it so creatively that even autocorrect can't discern what I meant to say. And as I do, I can taste the dream. It's sharp and sweet and everything in between. It felt vital then and it feels vital now in a way I cannot even articulate to you except that it felt somehow like an entire life would be lost to me if I didn't get it all down. So with a strange sense of urgency for 4.18 a.m., I type out all I can remember before finally allowing myself to sink back into bed in the forgotten world of unconscious. In the morning after the dream, I plotted away in ignorant ordinariness. I ate my yogurt and granola with some raspberries on top, 
drink my tea. I mindlessly scrolled through Facebook and Instagram. And then with a jolt, I remembered not really the dream, but just that I had had one. And despite my hazy memories of typing out a jumble of words, I am surprised to see in my notes a fairly cohesive narrative, typos notwithstanding. And the dream is as follows. I'm in Scotland with a group of travelers. They're strangers to me. We are all gathered around this gorgeous, dark, and moody bar. There's lots of wood paneling. And a bar top that seems to stretch on into eternity. Behind the bar are shelves and shelves filled with a variety of bottles. Some look like they must be popular, because they're nearly empty. And light filters in through some unseen window, and I can see the light playing with the motes of dust in the air. I have that curious feeling of being at home in a place I've never been before. The bartender startles me when he asks what I want. And I startle myself when I answer with confidence. Give me a drink that tastes of our people. He smiles shyly at me, and then goes up to mix up an elaborate concoction. Eventually, he hands me a round, short glass filled with a translucent, pale liquid. Lilac liquid. I sip, and it tastes like saline. My mouth puckers at the taste. He watches me carefully and asks, What do you taste? I am confused by his question. Shouldn't he know since he made it? In irritation, I take another sip before responding to him. But this time it tastes like ice cream sundae with hot fudge. The bittersweet temptation of childhood, the thing I loved the most to get when we would go out. I'm baffled. I sip again, and this time it tastes the way air smells after a rainy spring night. I take another, a fourth and final sip, and this time it burns like whiskey or regret. I'm not quite sure. He asks again, what do you taste? Complexity, I say. His smile goes from shy to sly. He places a bottle on the bar. You can have as much as you like. This seems like a thoroughly appropriate response to my odd answer. I turn to look at the bottle and I carefully examine the label. I can't understand the lettering on it. It's ornate and in an alphabet I had never seen before. I squint my eyes and then I furrow my brow as if this is going to help me understand. Until finally I ask, what does it mean? He laughs at me and he says, well, I can't expect a yank like you would be able to read it. It says wisdom in Gaelic, but that isn't what it means. To know a body's meaning demands more of you than just a sip or four. I feel confounded, and as I'm seeking to decipher his words, staring at him and feeling as if he is both there and not there, I feel the sudden weight of a hand on my shoulder. When I turn around, the strangers are no longer strangers, but friends I just hadn't met yet. From there, the dream fades from sleep to consciousness, and we're back to the fumbling stillness that we began with. A dream, much like visions, sacred literature, and pretty much any other kind of story, offers a myriad of interpretations. You and I, we're not going to go deep into various theories or mechanics of dream interpretation today. Although, believe me, friend, I would love to do that with you, maybe in the future. 
What I want us to focus on instead is is to dive into this dream and to make sense of it for you and me. There are many, many images in this dream, and for the sake of brevity, I'm going to suggest that we just examine the frame and the drink. And I want to invite you to imagine yourself into this dream with me to come along and consider whether or not it's a story you can relate to and with. So to start with the frame, the basic structure of the dream is that we are surrounded by strangers, alone at the bar, and then welcomed by new friends. We're surrounded by strangers not only at the bar, but in this whole land. The dreamer is a tourist traveling with a group of strangers in Scotland. I don't know if you've had that experience before, where you're in a crowd that technically you, quote, belong to, but it's it's not like you actually belong. You're just there. I always think about this when I go to weddings of, like, I know the bride and groom, but I don't really know all of the people, and I just am constantly searching for a face that is familiar, that isn't, you know, the whole reason for the shindig. It's hard to be surrounded by strangers, even when you have a common purpose. The next part of the frame is that we are alone at the bar, except that's not technically true. The bartender's there, but he's held at his distance. He's this dispenser of wisdom, quite literally in the dream. He's a curious questioner, and he's the one that offers the challenge in how to move forward. To know a body's meaning demands more than a sip or four. And then, after we have this encounter with him, we are welcomed by new friends. The scene is the same, but everything is different, as is often the case. Drinking potions, whether alcoholic or alchemical, changes everything. The dreamer emerges from the experience changed. The question is, what does that all mean? Why is the frame in three parts? Well, partly because I I chose, as I'm interpreting this dream, to put it into three parts. But also, I, I didn't choose. It's what felt appropriate to me. It's what felt like it should be. And often when we hear things in in threes, we're talking about the structure of what Jungians and Freudians call the ego, but really what you and I typically just call as like what we are actually aware of. What is on the surface? How are we making sense? How are we strategizing our way through? And it's really interesting in this dream, in this frame, the dreamer changes and it plays out externally, right? They go from being one among strangers to one amongst friends that just haven't met yet. This change happens because they do some internal processing, some internal questioning and curiosity of what it is they, they want or what they need. And they start off by asking, give me a drink of my people. They're wanting to connect. They're wanting to go deeper. Edward Edinger, the Jungian, the former Jungian analyst and thinker, he died about 20 years ago now. He suggests that three, the number three in an archetypal sense, refers to the process of an ego-based operation that has the possibility of leading to the experience of self from the standpoint of the ego. 
which in everyday language basically means that when there's something happening in the process of three, like past, present, and future, like looking at all three of those pieces, when we're engaging our mind to do that, it offers the possibility, it offers the opportunity for something deeper to emerge. That it sounds sort of mystical actually, but he's talking about how when we engage in a threefold sequence or process, that there's something of the self that can come through, that the ego can see that deeper part of ourselves. And we don't, as I mentioned, we're not going to get into major dream theory, and we're certainly not going to get into Jungian uh, archetypal structure of the psyche for another time, perhaps. But the idea, I think, is how I'm reading it and how I'm imagining it is here's a frame that will keep us safe. Here's a place that is going to bracket us and allow us to have an experience of something that is much wider, much deeper much scarier in many ways than everyday ordinary life. This dream isn't about just going to a bar and having a drink and then making friends after you've had a couple. I I guess we could interpret it that way. This, This dream is about not feeling like you belong, not feeling like you can connect with people who you don't know yet. And we could certainly ask ourselves, why does the dreamer not know these people? They've been on a tour for a while, you would imagine, or even if it's the first day, like they've definitely probably done something. Like why haven't they connected? And the dreamer struggles with connection. And I I can say that because I am the dreamer. Maybe you are too. And yet the struggle for connection opens up the possibility to be transformed. And so we come down then to the drink, the drink of my people. What is it composed of? It's saline, like the the salty taste of water, ocean water. It's bittersweet. It tastes like the smell of rain. And then it tastes like the burn of whiskey or regret. And when all of these parts are experienced by the dreamer, the resulting taste is complexity. So what wisdom may each of the tastes be offering to the dreamer? When we talk about saline, we think about the taste of tears in the ocean. Those are both places where we dissolve and we can't remain the same as we once were. An alchemical process, I told you I was going to talk about the structure of the psyche, but I maybe am a little bit. An alchemical process, if Young used alchemical process as a huge giant metaphor for how the psyche grows and changes and, and develops into not just self as like my understanding of who I am and who I am in the world, but self as an understanding of who, who am I human? And there's more to say about that, but we won't get into it. But solutio is an alchemical process where One is actually dissolving into the water. One is dissolving into the greater part. And I've always loved that tears taste like the ocean because there is a sense when we allow ourselves to cry, when we allow ourselves to cathart, when we allow ourselves to feel, we're allowing ourselves to dissolve more into what it means to be human and less just of 
who you are as a very specific individual person, but that we are more than just one. The bittersweet taste, which is also hot and cold in the dream, right? Hot fudge, cold ice cream. This is the taste of opposites. The taste is composed of opposites that aren't merged. There's bitter and there's sweet. There's hot and there's cold. There's a seeking to balance without merging the opposites, without being in some ways codependent. And then there's a temptation to look at it just one way, to not see the variation of differences, to to merge it as just white or black with no mixing of things together. Maybe you can relate that it's hard to not put things into binaries, to not put people into good or bad, evil or virtuous, brilliant or dumb, hot or cold, literally. Bittersweet calls for the dreamer to taste both, to take in the complexity of both. Just like it's a complex thing to allow ourselves to dissolve but still continue to stand upright. The third taste is not quite a taste, it's smell. This is where the dream starts to feel more dreamlike and that things don't make as much coherent sense. And it's the smell of rain. There's actually a word for the earthy scent that's produced when rain falls on dry soil. It's petrichor. I'll put it in the show notes so you can hear how it's actually pronounced. And it's a Greek word uh, that takes the word for rock, petros, and then ikor, the, which is the word for the fluid that flows in the veins of the gods in Greek mythology. So it's essentially the idea is like the fluid of the gods, like the blood of the gods, which is water, flows out of this rock, this really solid thing. And even though it's a Greek word, it actually was coined by two Australian scientific researchers in the 1960s. Again, I'll put that information in the show notes. So it turns out that the smell isn't from rain. It's not the smell of rain. It's actually the oil and this other component, geosmin, which is a byproduct of a certain kind of bacteria that gets released when it rains. And the oil, if it's not released, actually impairs seed germination and early plant growth. So the smell of rain is actually the smell of release, of tension, of surrender. The ground is letting go of its oil, lightning is discharging its energy, and the clouds are letting go of everything they've been holding. So the smell of rain is the smell of release, of surrender, which is fascinating to me. I I didn't know that when I dreamed the dream, although apparently my unconscious did, that we start with sort of allowing ourselves just to feel into who we are as a human. And then we start to pay attention to the opposites, how we can be both and, and then we get to release, we get to surrender. And in the dream, I don't slow down. The dreamer doesn't slow down. We keep going. We take another sip without even interacting with the bartender. And that taste is the burn of whiskey or regret. It's unclear in the dream, or perhaps it's both, just like the bitter and the sweet. 
And again, as I was putting together my notes for today, I discovered that the word whiskey is derived from the Scottish Gaelic phrase, water of life. And I'm not much of a whiskey drinker in my waking life, but I was so intrigued that Ishkabahaha, again, I will link something in the show notes so you can hear how it's actually pronounced. That translates to water of life, which I didn't know. I didn't know any of this when I dreamed the dream. In fact, I didn't know it even months after dreaming the dream. I only knew it when I came and sat down and explored this dream. So after surrender comes the water of life. And taking truth, taking this water of life, which we could talk lots about, but um, there is the sense that that is what is waiting for us on the other side of death. That is what, in the Christian mythos, God offers us, and to anyone who wants to drink of it, can. There is a counterbalance, in some ways, to the truth of the knowledge of good and evil, which is, I will remind you, where we started in this little mini-series of what happens when you taste temptation? What happens when you become exiled? The end of that story, again, in the Christian mythos, is we come back around again. We enter the garden after having been in exile. We come back to the promised land. And the fact is, taking truth in its distilled form burns, like regret, like whiskey, like the water of life. The dream really wanted the dreamer to know that it burns to be alive. But there is water. There is, there is space to allow ourselves to really feel what it means. And so when the dreamer has asked again, what do you taste? The dreamer tasted complexity. The dreamer tasted all of that. And the only word that suited was complexity, which is what it means to be composed of many interconnected parts characterized by a very complicated or involved arrangement of parts or units. And that has, I think, been the theme of this little season that we've had, that we are all complex and that life is so complex. There's so many parts of us and so many things we taste in life that we can't always distinguish. Our palate is poor. There's also this other definition of complex, which is the Jungian idea that a complex is a system of interrelated, emotion-charged ideas, feelings, memories, and impulses that is usually repressed and gives rise to abnormal or pathological behavior. And as I mentioned in the last episode, we are living in a time filled of pathology. And if I even attempted to list it all, we'd not only be here for days more, but I I really think I would dissolve, dissolve into sorrow and sadness. And I don't know if I have enough hope to pick myself up, so I'm not going to. And, oh, maybe here's the hope. I think that we're often tempted to think our time is significantly worse than any other time. But it isn't. Each age, generation, community, family, person We're all posed with the same challenge. What wisdom do you allow yourself to taste? Are you willing to imbibe the many shades of complexity in life? It's easy to stop tasting after sorrow, after tasting the good. 
but you must continue to drink. If you're ever going to taste the burn of the water of life. And what's more, this frame of the dream reminds us that if we are able to really take into the wisdom offered to us, we move from being a stranger in the world to surrounded by friends we just hadn't met yet. Ugh, that just feels like such a cliche interpretation. Boring, even. But sometimes dreams just have to hit you over the head with what they're trying to say, even when you'd wish that they'd offer you the answer to some deep and dark and painful secret you hold inside. Except, this does feel like a deep and dark and painful secret I've held inside for much longer than I can tell you. The secret has always been, something is wrong with you for caring this much about the meaning of things. It's this belief and deeply felt experience that who and how I am is different, is outsider, is not normal, and not in a good standout and impressed kind of way. It's bad. Maybe you can relate. The problem has always been, at least for me, thinking too goddamn much and living too goddamn little. It never occurred to me until this dream that maybe there may be another way. Well, I mean that only half facetiously. I've been told many times there are many other ways to live life. But but this dream feels like allowing myself to rely on others and not always have to feel and be so very alone. But that's always felt like a promise for other people, not not for me. And if I accept it, it'd all be just rewarded with bullshit. But after this dream... It really did dawn on me that maybe somewhere, awake or in dreams, there may be a group of people who look like strangers, but who are really just friends in disguise, who care deeply about making sense of life and the meaning of things. It's like the dream that I remember is only a remnant of a larger map of meaning, a map whose other pieces I'm always searching for, in hopes that I'll know them when I find them. On hopeful days, I like to imagine that you hold a piece of that map too. And so we come down to it. What the point of this podcast is. I hope, I hope that it will be a space for people who long to taste depth and complexity in their lives. Much like the bartender shared his wisdom with me. I'm sharing my wisdom with you. My wisdom though isn't worth shit unless it's joined by your wisdom. We work together to reconstruct our map so we can figure out where we're going together on this cosmic spiritual road trip. And in order to share our wisdom together, we need to have times and places and internal spaces to connect. And so through the weird magic of the internet, which, guys, I'm an elder millennial, and I technically existed before the internet was a thing, so it still really does feel like magic to me. Through the magic of the internet, though, we can connect. The internet can feel like a dark bar sometimes, or while you know that technically there are other people hanging out, you're really just focusing on nursing your own bottle of poison. Maybe like me, you need a consistent reminder that neither you nor I are really alone on this weird journey of life. None of us is really alone. And no, I'm not talking about extraterrestrials, but I'm also not not talking about extraterrestrials, which is a really hard word to say, actually. So, I'm rambling. 
What I'm wanting to say to you is The Thinker's Guide to is more than just a podcast. It's a community of people who long to connect and who know that being alive is pretty fucking weird. And what's more, we find that weirdness both appealing and heartbreaking. Underneath it all, we hunger to live more fully and aim to be more present within this heart-wrenching beauty of being human, capable of doing really bad and really good things. There's only so far you can go on your own, though. Life is not a solo adventure. If this was a game, it'd definitely be a co-op. And so we have a tribe, we have a community, and with so many pieces that have been scattered throughout our world, I hope that we begin to weave our stories together, to discover the common ground we cohabitate in our hearts, and join hands as we surrender to that something more than what religion calls the divine and the rest of us call shit-your-pants language robbing seven ways to heaven awesome aka life. I hate to end on such a high note, though. Feels disingenuous. Like somehow connecting is easy. And sure, connecting without intimacy isn't really all that hard. Believe you me, there are plenty of books that will teach you how, and I've read at least a quarter of them. But intimacy and its kissing cousin vulnerability, these are difficult ways to be. It's easy to listen to a podcast, to consume facts and figures, enjoy the occasional story, chit-chat with colleagues and strangers in the grocery store. These things are only hard until you learn the rules of behavior. There aren't many rules for being vulnerable. Intimacy demands that you take off all the labels and personas you cloak yourself in. But I'm definitely getting ahead of myself. Today, what I'm really wanting to do is invite you to do the first hard thing. To not just be a listener, not just be a passerbyer, but to actually stop and reflect on who you are and why you listen to this whole episode all the way to the end. I hope it's because you want more. You want to taste more, to do more, to be more. The poet Danielle Voodoo Fortune sums this up so beautifully for me. It's in her poem, How to Break a Curse. She tells us, drink when you feel ready. Drink even if you do not. And so we're left for this mini season to ask ourselves the question, what wisdom do I allow myself to taste Am I willing to imbibe the many shades of complexity in life? Am I willing to risk taking in what will confound me and try to make sense of it? I can't answer it for you. Today, I say yes. Tomorrow, I hope I'll be so brave. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your death, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. I'd love for you to head over to therapyforthinkers.com slash reading habit to learn how you can enter for a chance to win my seven favorite books for the existentially curious. Remember, you only have till July 12th, 2020 to enter for your chance to win. 
As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As G.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.